Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And uh, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then uh, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and, uh, and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Uh, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you that it's filled with stories. Stories of uh, people who are struggling to live in a uh, often disappointing and hard world, and who come to find that you are faithful, uh, that you are good, that you can be trusted. And uh, we pray that as we commit our minds, devote our minds to study your word now, that you would uh, just open our eyes to who you are, that you'd give us faith, you'd give us repentance, you would challenge and comfort us. And Lord, we, we need you to do these things by your Spirit. So send your Spirit to guide us into all truth, to be our teacher now this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week I was uh, listening to a, a radio program about uh, foie gras, which some of you, if you're a foodie kind of person, you know what foie gras is, is a very uh, fatty food that comes from the livers of geese. And uh, it was a really interesting radio, radio program because if, if uh, foie gras, if you're familiar with it at all, you may know, is, is made by taking a goose, strapping it down, putting a tube down its throat, and force-feeding it food until uh, its liver gets really big and fatty and juicy, and you eat the liver. And of course, uh, it's kind of controversial uh, kind of food to eat because there's all kinds of chefs who... I uh, think that foie gras is this delicacy. It's, you know, supreme fatty food. You can put it on anything and it will make it into gourmet food. And yet they're conflicted, right? Because foie gras, you know, you've got to strap down the animal and put a tube down its throat and it seems inhumane to be uh, treating a goose that way. And so um, this radio show was about this farmer in Spain named Eduardo who had brilliantly come up with a way to make foie gras without treating the geese this way. And so uh, the, the radio show was about this chef who went over to Spain to visit this little farm and to f see what this guy was like. And it talks about how he shows up in this farm and uh, Eduardo is lying in the grass with all the geese kind of walking around him and he's calling them his lovelies. And he's like, oh, my lovelies, come around, my lovelies. And he's uh, taking pictures of them. And the whole interview, they have to talk in these hushed voices so as not to disrupt the geese. And so the chef goes there and he says, so how are you doing this? I don't even believe that you're really doing this. How are you making these, uh, these livers? And, uh, and it turns out that Eduardo tells him, well, it, the reality is that geese will gorge themselves 
on food if you let them. They will fatten up their own livers. And all you need to do is to make a farm where you have all kinds of delicacies around for them to just wander around and eat, you know, all kinds of figs and things like that. And they'll just eat and eat and eat until their livers are, are fat. Except there's one catch. In order for them to do it, they have to be convinced that they are living in the wild. They cannot know that they are being domesticated. Because as soon as they know that they're being domesticated, they'll know that they're going to get fed through the winter. But as long as they think the winter is coming, and I better eat in order, in order to fatten myself up for the winter, as long as they think they're in the wild and they're totally free, they will gorge themselves. And so he makes this farm where to communicate to the geese that you're totally free, and there has no fences, and a third of the geese get eaten by predators, so he loses quite a lot of his animals. And, uh, and you know, they wander around. Actually, it's pretty amazing because he, uh, how they get more geese is these geese love this paradise so much that they don't, they don't fly, uh, you know, north, uh, north in the summer and south in the, in, in the winter. They, they just stay there. And then there's wild geese. When they're flying by, they call to the wild geese, and the wild geese come and live with them and just stay there. He doesn't trap them. He doesn't do anything. And they just come and they live there. It's this amazing thing. And then they get fattened up, and he eats their livers. And it's this incredible thing. Um, and... Uh, and he has found a way to get these geese to do what he wants without tying them down, strapping them down, and forcing a tomb down their throat. And um, what, I, you know, what struck me about this story was that it really seemed to communicate to me two different ways of approaching God's world. Because there's one way to approach God's world and to get the things you want out of it through control through making things go, you know, strapping things down and forcing them to do what you want them to. And there's another way of approaching God's world where you understand how God's world works and you almost yield to God's world. And as a result, it becomes full of, of life and fruit and abundance and goodness. And I think that this second way of approaching God's world is very close to what the Bible understands as wisdom. This is what wisdom is. And uh, Cornelius Plantinga is a, a theologian who's defined wisdom in the Bible this way. He says, In the literature of Scripture, wisdom is, broadly speaking, the knowledge of God's world and the knack of fitting oneself into it. Wisdom is the knowledge of God's world and a knack for fitting oneself into it. It's um, understanding that this is not my world, this is God's world. How does he run his world? And once I understand how he runs his world, how do I then fit myself into the world that he runs in a way that, that understands him, that's consistent with who he is? Well, um, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, if, if you haven't been with us in, in the story of Ruth, uh, what's basically happened, there's these two widows named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who are two poor widows who've moved from the land of Moab into uh, the southern part of Israel, which is called Judah, in, into the town of Bethlehem. And they're poor, and they've met this man named Boaz, who has helped them, and he's actually fallen in love with Ruth. And, um, and so we're entering into this process where he wants to marry Ruth. This is something he wants to see happen in God's world. But there's an obstacle 
In order to marry her, he has to redeem Naomi. That means he has to buy her inheritance. And with her inheritance, uh, he also acquires Ruth as his wife. He's obligated to marry her. And so there's this obstacle. And so we're going to watch. What is he going to do when he realizes that there is another redeemer before him? Someone else has the opportunity to marry Ruth before he does and to to, uh, redeem the land and redeem Naomi. There's an obstacle. What is Boaz going to do in the light of that obstacle? And what we see from him is that Boaz does not have a desire to control or to manipulate or to make things go the way, enforce himself on the situation to make it go the way he wants. We see him acting with wisdom and in, very, in many ways really acting the way that Planiga describes of having a knowledge of God's world and he just has a knack for understanding how it works. And so this morning um, we're going to look at Ruth for these first six verses and think of it in light of Planiga's de- definition that he tells us there's really two things that make up wisdom. It's first of all a knowledge of God's world and second a knack for fitting, wisdom is a knack for fitting oneself into, the, into God's world. A knowledge of God's world and a knack for fitting oneself into God's world. So um, uh, we're gonna, uh, what do those two things mean? We'll look at it together. So first, wisdom is the knowledge of God's world. To be a wise person, you need to have a knowledge of God's world, which the first thing to say about that is that knowledge is important, okay? And, and, you know, that's one of the things that you'll find when you meet people who are wise, they are learners. They always want to know things. You know, they read the Bible a lot, or they're always asking people questions who are more knowledgeable than them, or they're reading books, and they always want to get more knowledge to understand the world around them. But in particular, we see in this passage there's two bits of knowledge that are especially important for living wisely in the world. And I want to point those out in this passage, that the first bit of knowledge that's really important for being a wise person is to understand that all events are directed by God. All events that happen in the world are directed by God. He is in complete control of everything that happens. And you see this, look at this passage, it's great. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and uh, sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken uh, came by. Now, what does, first of all, whenever the, the book of Ruth says the word behold, behold, someone showed up, it's kind of telling you God's working, God's orchestrating events, he's in control. He's, he's, so all of a sudden, oh, the Redeemer came by, behold, he's there, and now they're going to have this exchange, they're going to have this conversation. And it turned out that in the last conversation, uh, Boaz had said to Ruth, hey, I'm going to redeem you, I want to marry you, but there's another guy who has, a first, has an opportunity first to do it. The law says that he gets the chance first. And so all of a sudden, here the guy shows up. And so Boaz says, let's, let's talk about Ruth, the end of verse 1. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now what this is talking about is in in ancient Israel, in the city gates, when you'd enter into the city, there were these rooms that were built into the walls of the city that could fit about a dozen men where the elders uh, uh, of the community would come together. And if there was some dispute among the people of the town, they would come together and the elders would make a ruling on that dispute. And so what Boaz is doing here is he's gathering all the elders together and he's saying, hey, listen, I I want you to make a ruling on this. I'd like to marry Ruth, but this guy has a first chance. Let's... 
talk it out and see what they say. And so he makes this um, public hearing with the guy. And then it goes on, verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, re- uh, if, if you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know if the, uh, no, for there is one besides, uh, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And what's amazing about this little scene? Boaz desperately wants to marry Ruth, and yet he is so open and transparent. Right? There's not an ounce of him trying to manipulate the process. He's not saying to Ruth, let's try to find a plan. I know there's this other guy who can marry you first, but let's just see if we can uh, skirt past the process that God has put in place in this community. And, um, and the reason for that is because Boaz trusts that God is in control of all that happens. The Lord is directing all events that happen in the world. And in order to live wisely in the world, you need to know that deeply in your heart that God is ultimately in control and that he is good. And actually, that's one of the big themes of the book of Ruth. If you look at the, uh, the beginning of the book of, book of Ruth, there's a, uh, uh, it talks about how the Lord had visited um, the people in, uh, his people and brought food to them. And at the end of the book of Ruth, it talks about how the Lord gave conception to Ruth when she has a baby at the end of the book. And throughout the book, it's God's invisible hand is directing everything that happens in the world. Um... But Ruth, meeting Boaz, it was by chance. Behold, uh, she came upon the right field, and Boaz showed up. Boaz has been watching God orchestrate events according to his plan. And so now, when he's faced with anxiety, anxiety about this is woman that he loves, and he may lose her. He wants to marry her, but there's another redeemer. He doesn't try to manipulate the process. He submits to the process because he believes that God is in control of all things. And when we know that God's in control, we act in a way that's wise, that's honoring to people, and invites other people in. And it's control that, that oftentimes actually frustrates our relationships with people. It frustrates um, our work that we do. It frustrates um, uh, you know, people that we're working alongside. Um, all these things, when we try to control these things, it frustrates things, but living wisely is a sense of waiting on God's control over all events. And um, in many ways, this is the most fundamental quality of living wisely in God's world. If you want to live wisely in God's world, is to understand that all events are directed by him. In Psalm 111, um, which is a psalm about all of God's work, his creation, his directing of all things in the creation, towards the end says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a place of humility before God to say, I don't know what the Lord's purposes are, but I trust him. The beginning of wisdom is to say to the Lord, Thy will be done. Whatever you may bring, I embrace it as from your hands. Thy will be done. That's the beginning of wise living. And it's when we've been able to say that to the Lord that you direct all things. And that's the first way, you know, how do we view the world? How do we view the events that are happening in history in our lives as we look out in the world? How do we view it? We view it as God directing all things. Then we begin to be slow to complain, 
slow to control, and even slow to act. We are not rash when we speak and when we do things. We wait on the Lord, okay? And, um, you know, if I could just add here, this is actually not just how, what the Bible says is wisdom. This is also what freedom is. If you want to have a free life, the Bible says the free, a free life sounds like saying to the Lord, thy will be done, which means thy will be done in your commandments to me, and I do what you've commanded to me. To be a slave to the Lord is to be free, but to be enslaved to my own passions is actually slavery. So to say to the Lord, thy will be done, and I'll obey your commandments is freedom, but also to say to the Lord, thy will be done in your sovereign purposes in my life is to begin to enter into true freedom. Nothing can have control over you. Nothing can be outside of God's purposes when we can, our hearts can say that to the Lord. And this is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. Now, it turns out that this wisdom of understanding God's world, and you know, it has a posture of humility toward God, right? So we have a posture of humility to God because we look at the things that are happening in our life and we realize, you know, what I'm seeing with my eyes is not necessarily the deeper reality of what those events are about, right? I have to look beyond the events to say there's God's purposes behind the events. So it gives us a, po a posture of humility towards God, but it also gives us a posture of humility towards people. Um, it takes humility to say, I don't know what God's deeper purposes are, but I trust in them. But also, there's deeper purposes behind people as well. And this is the second thing that, um, about wisdom, the kind of knowledge that we have. is not just that God is directing all events in history, but also that all people are directed by their hearts. That is an important bit of wisdom that we understand is when we realize, when we interact with people, you're dealing with people all the time. And there's something that they're showing you on the surface. There are words that they're saying. There's attitudes that they're giving you. And the wise person understands that there are things happening in people's hearts that are directing them that are deeper than what's on the surface. Or as uh, Pascal put it, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. It's not pure logic, the reason why people do things. And what's happening with Boaz here is on the one hand, he enters into, into this process and gives this other man an opportunity to redeem Ruth, which he must be trusting God. God's in control. But he also shows that he has the discerning mind about this other redeemer, that he understands the redeemer's heart and he understands his motivations. Look at, um, uh, because essentially what happens is that um, he offers the redemption of Na Naomi's inheritance. And then look what it says in the second part of uh, verse 4. And he said, and, and the, rede the other redeemer said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead that is his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest... I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Um, Boaz understands, enters this process, understands that there's all, kind of all kinds of motivations working in this other redeemer's heart, and primarily that his motivations are for financial gain. Boaz's motivation is to marry this woman, and his motivations are towards financial gain. So how he's going to deal with him is in light of that. He understands what's going on. Wisdom discerns these things that are below the surface. 
both in our interactions with God, we look at the things that are happening in our life, and we don't think this is wildly out of control, what's happening in my life. We think there is a good God who is directing things for my good. If I belong to him, if I love him, God directs all things for my good. We also understand with people that what we get on the surface is not necessarily who they really are. And there's a discerning mind of trying to understand the hearts of other people. That's what the wise do. And there's, you know, there's an episode in the Gospels where early on in, uh, in uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, uh, Jesus is, uh, his ministry, he's beginning to gain some fame because of the miracles he's doing. And this is, and John makes this little note in the end of John chapter 2. He says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It was a part of Jesus' wise dealings to be discerning about the motivations of people's hearts. And so we, sh- you know, we should know that about our own hearts, that the reason we do things, there may be, the motives are complex, and that's true about other people. And so what that means is we're going to be slow to judge, uh, slow, maybe slow to trust sometimes, too. We're going to listen to people. We're going to be slow to speak because we know that there are other realities at stake that are more complex than what's on the surface. That's what a wise person looks like. That's what Boaz looks like as he enters this process. And so both of these truths is understanding that all events are directed by God and all, all people are directed by their hearts, these two things. Both of us give us a sense of pause and waiting Um, that wisdom most fundamentally often looks like patience, humility, and waiting. Slow to judge, slow to speak, slow to act. And as a result, to be also slow to control. To control other people and to control our situation. We rest in God's care, okay? Now, you may hear that and think that uh, what that means then is wisdom looks like being passive, right? Uh, You know, if the world is so complex and there's so many things happening and God has these purposes that I don't even know and he's directing all things according to his purposes and, you know, why should I do anything? How can I act if he's in complete control? Why does that give me any motivation to do anything? Or, you know, if people are so complex and they have these inner motivations and I always need to be discerning them, you know, how can I ever really fully trust someone? Can I ever enter into a relationship? And there is a tension here in wisdom, and this is the second thing that we learn about wisdom. It's not just that wisdom is a knowledge of God's world, which means the complexities of God's world, understanding his world, but also wisdom is a knack for fitting oneself into God's world. It's taking that knowledge and letting that result in action, responsible action in the world. And, you know, I really like that, world from, that word from the definition, having a knack for li- living in God's world, which kind of says that in order to live wisely in the world, it's a skill, right? It's not a formula that you follow. It's not a list of rules that you kind of check off. It's more of an art form living in God's world, knowing how to do it. You know, it's kind of like a craft. You, know, you think of someone who's good at working with wood. And, you know, on the one hand, they generally have some rules of thumb for... You know, you, you know, if you ever are working with someone, they say, well, here's this rule. I, I, I don't work with wood, so I can't tell you any of the rules of thumb. But I'm sure there are some. But, you know, you don't follow the rules of thumb 
you know, completely, absolutely. There's times where you say, you know, there's this certain kind of touch that you need. And uh, you need to kind of, you know, have a sense of how the wood works and how it bends and how it feels and all these things. And, and actually, in, in the Old Testament, when uh, Israel was building the tabernacle, which is, uh, you know, God's tent that he lived in when they were wandering in the, in the desert, there was uh, the artist who built all the stuff in, inside of the uh, tabernacle. It said that God gave them wisdom. It was with wisdom that the Spirit enabled them to build these crafts. And in that way, wisdom is the skill of godly living. It is a skill of taking the the complex knowledge of God's world and putting it into action in how we live. And you know, uh, what I love about this passage is that Boaz shows a tremendous shrewdness as he... Uh, interacts with the elders and interacts with this man in this passage, um, he's by no means passive. On the one hand, he says God is in control. He's not manipulating. He's not controlling. He's being very transparent and open. He's, he's following the process that is in place in his community. And yet, he's also being active and thoughtful. And you may even see, say aggressive. He's pursuing what he wants, right? And, you know, in the last chapter, if you've been with us the last couple chapters, Buzz, he's very tender. He's very expressive, you know, as he's talking to, uh, to Ruth, and he's encouraging to her, and he praises her, and he prays for her. Um, but in this passage, he's far more flat. He's directive. He's organizing the leaders of the town. He's setting up this meeting. He's being forthright with this uh, other Redeemer guy. And, you know, part of the shrewdness is also that he knows what's happening in his community. He knows about relationships. He's got his ears open. You know, you look at this Redeemer... Who's, who, the guy who had the first chance to marry Ruth, he doesn't even know about it. He doesn't even know that Naomi's back and she has this field that he could buy and that he could have purchased. And so Boaz needs to tell him. And then when he says, yeah, sure, I'll buy that field. That's great. I'm going to get this inheritance. And then he says, oh, by the way, Ruth the Moabite, you're going to have to marry her too if you get the, the field. And he's like, oh, I didn't know about that. If, back in chapter one, the, we know that the whole town was abuzz about Naomi and Ruth coming back from, from, uh, from Moab. And so here's this guy who's kind of clueless. He doesn't even know what's happening in his community. Boaz does. He has relationships. He has networks of people that he's talking to. And and he's taking that information. And he's actively working. And it results in this negotiating strategy. I mean, a lot of this passage is him being a negotiator, right? He's trying to make a deal. And which says to us, and, you know, it's interesting how he goes about the negotiating. He doesn't show all his cards at the beginning, right? He says, hey, there's this field you can buy. The guy says, yeah, I'll buy it. And he says, oh, by the way, there's Ruth you have to marry as well. And then he, the guy has to back out, and he kind of makes a public fool of this guy, right? And, you know, gets him to, to be all in, and then he has to back out of it. And so he's just being very wise in how he's setting things up. And which tells us that as Christians, even though we're called to be humble, to wait on the Lord, to be slow to speak, there is a place for us to act wisely in the world and to know how the world works and to engage in it and to, uh, and to sometimes be direct and to organize things and uh, to sometimes wait. It's a skill. How do you do? There's no formula for that. It's a skill in how you do it. And I'll just tell you, for many of you, how much this plays out plays a big place in your life. You know, if you're a teacher, 
how you run a classroom and how you, how you deal with kids or being disruptive and how you, you know, invest in kids. Or if, you, if you're a manager in a company and you have people that you're overseeing or you're some kind of supervisor, it, it requires a, a tremendous amount of wisdom both to encourage people and both to challenge people so that uh, they're working excellently. How do you do that? All of these things are, should be part of the great pursuit of our life as Christians. Living wisely in God's world and having a knack for living in God's world. But as we look at this and we say, okay, wow, Boaz is negotiating. You know, he's not showing all his cards and he's trying to get this guy, you know, he's so, on the one hand, he's following the process and on the other hand, he's being very thoughtful about it. Is, is, isn't he being manipulating, manipulative here? Isn't he being controlling? What's, what's the difference? Well, one of the big differences between Boaz and the other Redeemer who, by the way, goes unnamed. We don't even know his name. He's kind of this faceless, you know, dummy who doesn't really know what's going on. One of the differences is the faceless redeemer, all he cares about is making money for himself. His whole, he doesn't care about these, these poor widows and caring for them. He just cares about his investment in it. Boaz's wisdom is marked by love. That's the thing that's driving him into that. So as he orchestrates things, and as he gets involved and he's directing people, it is always, it's an act of service. It's for the good of others. And that's the thing that marks the difference between being controlling and manipulative and a kind of active wisdom is that it is marked by love. And let me just tell you, this kind of wisdom, wisdom that is marked by love, is something that our, our world is longing for. You are longing for it in your workplace, people like that to work with. You're longing for it in your homes. We're longing for it in churches, as people serve in churches or in neighborhoods. We're longing for, to be around those kind of people. And of course, this tension, which all of us fail to do in various degrees, is seen perfectly in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, who, when he came on the night before he's going to be crucified, what were his words in his prayer? Thy will be done. A complete confidence that all events, as he was, you know, as people were raging with anger against him and they were going to crucify him, arresting that all events happen according to God's purpose. He said, Lord, thy will be done. And, uh, and, and yet, he knew people's hearts. He knew that it was, it was wicked men who were going to be uh, coming after him, who he was, you know, he was putting himself into their hands of these wicked men. And so he knew the hearts of men. And yet, even in the cross, when Jesus dies on the cross, there's a sense of cunning in it, isn't there? You know, that everyone thinks, wow, the, the Messiah is being crucified. It's a huge loss. And yet, what's happening? The sins of the world are being forgiven. Satan, who's the accuser, has no way to accuse God's people anymore because their sins are forgiven. He's disarmed Satan of his power. And, and even the you know, oppressive pagan powers that crucified him, he, raised from, he rises from the dead. And he disarms them, and they no longer have the power that they thought. And he is now expanding his kingdom subtly throughout the world, drawing hearts to himself. There's a tremendous wisdom, subversiveness in all that Jesus is doing. And that's why when we come to the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is defined in places in the New Testament as wisdom incarnate. The deep wisdom that made the stars and the mountains 
became a man, became a baby, and lived and acted, was enfleshed among us. And so this is what it says in Colossians 2.3. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want those treasures, you walk with him, you trust in him, you rest in him, and he will share those treasures with you. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word, and we thank you that there is a, a wise Lord directing all things according to his purposes. Lord, uh, bring us in to experience your wise dealings with us as your people, that we might delight in your wisdom and that you would then share it with us and send us out into the world as your wise people, that we may be blessings wherever we go. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.